It can be hard to see the challenges the people we work with are facing. Addressing these invisible struggles can make us and our companies healthier. Join Holly Robinson-Pete on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. One morning in New Jersey, there was a traffic jam. So in the morning of September 9th, 2013, it was the first day of school in Fort Lee, which is the town right across the George Washington Bridge from Manhattan. That is the busiest motor vehicle bridge in the world. And lots of the surrounding towns have drivers who come through Fort Lee to try to get onto the bridge and drive into Manhattan every morning for work. Back then, our colleague Ted Mann covered transportation around New York. And he says normally there are three lanes running from Fort Lee onto the bridge into Manhattan. But on this particular morning, cones blocked off two of them, leaving only one lane for all of Fort Lee. And those lanes stayed closed for nearly the entire week. There was just god-awful traffic all over the town. It was trapping kids in school buses in hours-long delays. There were ambulances caught in traffic. There was an EMT crew late to respond to a heart attack. It was chaos. How were people reacting that day when this massive traffic jam overtook their town? They were screaming at the police, wanting to know what the heck was going on. In the weeks and months following that traffic jam, Ted would be one of the reporters who helped uncover what was going on. Officials working for New Jersey Governor Chris Christie had created this traffic jam as political payback. The scandal even earned a splashy name. The so-called Bridgegate scandal. Bridgegate scandal. The Bridgegate scandal is still swirling. Evidently, it was a bridge too far. It probably seemed on the first Monday morning like some petty thing had gone wrong and it was screwing up your commute, but it was actually going to result in people being convicted of crimes and ultimately it was going to lead to a Supreme Court case. Nearly seven years later, the scandal has come to a close with a Supreme Court decision. Last week, the justices weighed in on whether this traffic scheme was a federal crime— And their decision was unanimous. Today on the show, the surprising end of the Bridgegate saga and what it could mean for the future of prosecuting political corruption. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Thursday, May 14th. Ted may have been a transportation reporter, but his beat didn't usually include local traffic jams. But just after that mysterious traffic jam in Fort Lee... It was either the Thursday or the Friday, I forget which. I got a call from someone at the Port Authority who I knew. The Port Authority is the agency that manages the bridges and tunnels between New Jersey and New York City. This person said that he had a tip for Ted, and he wanted to arrange a secret meeting over the weekend. What did you think getting a call like that? Well, this person was someone I didn't know all that well. And part of me thought, great, so I have to come meet you on a Saturday morning somewhere when it's my day off and, like, you think you're on some hot thing. And, okay, fine. But my wife was a reporter and she worked Saturdays back then. So she had no sympathy for me. And she said, just go to the stupid meeting. Come on. (laughs) So I did. The source wanted to have the conversation in a place where they wouldn't be seen together. 
So his source picked the middle of the Brooklyn Bridge. We went for a walk up onto the Brooklyn Bridge, and he said, all right, I have something. I'm going to show it to you. You can't have it. You can't tell anyone about it. You can't write about it. You can't reveal to anyone that you know it exists. But when I show it to you, you're going to see that there is something very interesting happening. Ted's source showed him a printout of an email from the Port Authority's executive director, the person ultimately in charge of the bridge where the traffic jam happened. The executive director was writing to some of the Port Authority's staff about the lane closures, and he was furious. The email was an absolute screed, and he basically said, this is hasty, this is ill-advised, I think it might have broken the law, and I pray that no life has been lost because of what you guys are doing. The email made clear that the head of the Port Authority himself hadn't known that these lanes were going to be closed. And Ted Soros had another tip for him. Call the press office for the Port Authority and ask them what the agency knew about the lane closures. See if it squares with the email you just saw. And so I called and I said, what's going on with this lane change in Fort Lee? I heard it's really screwing up the traffic. And I eventually got a statement emailed back from the person who had to handle those calls at the press shop. They said, we were doing a traffic study. We were working with the local officials. You know, everything is fine here. I knew that wasn't true. The statement claimed that this Fort Lee traffic jam was part of the Port Authority's plan all along. But Ted knew that wasn't true because of the email he just saw. It was clear that the executive director was in the dark about the whole thing. Also, the cover story that the press shop gave to Ted about the traffic study, it didn't hold up. It's literally not how you study traffic. You don't trigger a traffic jam and then find out if everybody hates it. That's not how it works. <laughs> and that was sort of the real red flag. Like, you have to start wondering what actually was going on. To be clear, traffic studies are done with sensors and computer models. But Ted eventually pieced together what was really going on. The traffic jam in Fort Lee was all part of a plot to get New Jersey Governor Chris Christie into the White House. In 2013, Christie was nearing the end of his first term as governor of New Jersey, but his political star was rising nationwide. He was a Republican governor in a blue state, and his brash style and bipartisan appeal made some people think he could run for president. So Christie's re-election campaign for governor was a chance to prove that he had what it takes. He was a very strong incumbent against a relatively weak Democratic opponent. And he didn't just want to win re-election. Everyone I talked to around Christie and around the Port Authority back then would say that he wanted to crush his opposition. And part of that was because that was how he was going to make the case to Republicans that he would be the best nominee for president. I can stand up for conservative things and also win the votes of the other side, and that was going to be his big pitch. One of the ways they were going to do it is to assemble a bunch of Democratic mayors who said, you know what, even though this guy's a Republican, he's doing such a good job, you ought to vote for him. The person in charge of running this bipartisan strategy for Christie was a deputy chief of staff named Bridget Kelly. Bridget Kelly, who was an aide in his office, was coming up with lists of Democratic mayors that they wanted to endorse Christie. Mm -hmm. And she was keeping in close contact with David Wildstein. Wildstein was a staffer at the Port Authority. He was hired at the request of the Christie administration. Wildstein had been hired under this made-up job title that was made up for him and disappeared the day he walked out of the building. 
He was called the Director of Interstate Capital Projects. But based on reporting around the building, it was clear that that wasn't really a thing. He was working on Christie's political fate. As part of this strategy to secure support of Democratic mayors, Wildstein helped direct Port Authority resources to encourage local politicians to endorse the governor. For the most part, the strategy worked. They got dozens of Democratic officials to endorse Christie in the 2013 election. But there were some Democrats who didn't play along, like the mayor of Fort Lee. The Christie people were very mad about it, Bridget Kelly included. And David Wildstein had an idea of what to do to him. And that was change these lanes around, inundate this guy's town with traffic. And if anybody comes up to the toll booth and says, what the heck are you guys doing? They would say, go ask your mayor. Hmm. And the mayor of Fort Lee would get the message pretty quickly that he had screwed up. I think if you had to invent something to anger the people of northern New Jersey, a traffic jam is the way to do it. That week that the mayor had to deal with angry residents, it was payback for his decision not to endorse Christie. But even without the support of Fort Lee's mayor, Christie cruised to victory in the governor's race. But reporters like Ted kept digging, unearthing new details about the scandal. Publicly, Christie dismissed the allegations that he might have been involved. He even joked about it. I worked the cones, actually, uh, Matt. Unbeknownst to everybody, I was actually the guy out there. I was in overalls and a hat, so I wasn't... A, but I actually was the guy working the cones out there. You really are not serious with that question. But behind the scenes, things were getting serious. Wildstein resigned, and not long after, he was subpoenaed by the New Jersey legislature, and he handed over a trove of emails and texts. The messages showed that Wildstein and Kelly were talking openly about their traffic payback plan. And one email, sent after Fort Lee's mayor declined to support the governor, would come to define the entire scandal. It was Bridget Kelly sending a message to David Wildstein that says, time for some traffic problems in Fort Lee. <laughs> the infamous email. The infamous email, which completely blows the cover on the whole cover story. It makes obvious that there was some intention of malice here. And that is when it really started to spiral out of Chris Christie's control. Federal prosecutors launched an investigation into the traffic scheme. They never found anything to connect Christie directly to what happened. And to this day, Christie denies any involvement. He argues that the lane closures didn't constitute a federal crime. As for Wildstein, he agreed to cooperate with prosecutors in exchange for a lesser charge. But prosecutors went on to charge two others, Bridget Kelly and a Port Authority official named Bill Baroni. The prosecutors made the case that by closing the traffic lanes, Kelly and Baroni had commandeered public property for political gain and then lied about it, which, to the prosecutors, was fraud. Both were convicted and sentenced to more than a year in prison. But Kelly and Baroni appealed, eventually all the way to the Supreme Court. And then, last week, the Supreme Court threw those convictions out the window. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. 
Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. How well do we know the people we work with every day? We share lunches, jokes, and deadlines. But are we aware of the unseen struggles we often face silently? Stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or feeling misunderstood at work. Through insight, awareness, and empathy, we can start to better see the issues our coworkers are dealing with, and that can make us and our companies healthier too. Join Holly Robinson Pete and her guests on the Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Welcome back. This month, the Supreme Court held its first remote virtual session in history. The court is now sitting. God save the United States and this honorable court. And last week, they handed down the ruling in the Bridgegate appeal. They decided to overturn the case. The justices said that it's true that Kelly and Brownie had misused public resources, those traffic lanes. But because they didn't do it for money or to obtain property, technically it wasn't actually federal fraud. And the justices were unanimous, 9-0. Justice Elena Kagan wrote the decision, and it was not an exoneration of the conduct here by any measure. It was pretty critical of everyone involved. It's, they did this thing. They did it for a political petty motive. They did it to get this mayor because he wouldn't endorse the governor, period. But ultimately what she decides is, she says it right in the decision, not every corrupt act by a state or local official is a federal crime. The court was deciding whether that scheme could be charged as fraud, and they said it couldn't. Hmm. Essentially, these guys did something bad, but it isn't illegal, not under the federal law. In a statement, Bridget Kelly applauded the ruling, saying it had reversed, quote, the six-and-a-half-year nightmare that has become my life. And Bill Baroni's lawyer said that the decision confirmed what Baroni had said all along, that he hadn't committed a crime. The Supreme Court's decision to overturn a case that seemed like a pretty clear abuse of power actually has some precedent. In the past few years, the court has been taking a skeptical view of federal prosecutors in local corruption cases. There have been a line of cases now where the courts ruled that prosecutors went too far, stretching federal statutes to go after local politicians. My colleague Brent Kendall has written about this, and I think he would start the clock in 2016 when the court ruled in this very influential case about Bob McDonnell, who had been the governor of Virginia. Former Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell, a Republican, had been convicted on 11 counts of corruption after accepting loans and gifts in exchange for arranging meetings and hosting events. But the Supreme Court said prosecutors were defining corruption in this case so broadly that it would apply to all kinds of things that politicians do routinely, like meeting potential donors and attending private events. So they overturned McDonald's conviction. And from the moment of that decision, you've seen big, high-profile public corruption convictions overturned in New York City and on Long Island. And I think it's fair to say there's a sense that McDonald continues to reverberate and to essentially have raised the bar that prosecutors have to clear. The Supreme Court's Bridgegate decision last week also found that prosecutors had overreached. The Justice Department declined to comment. So the Supreme Court leaves us with two ideas here. First, that Bridgegate was wrong. But also that federal prosecutors aren't the ones who should bring people like Kelly and Brony to justice. So the question is, 
who should? Justice Kagan's opinion offers two alternatives. One is that it's the voters' responsibility. What she's saying is, if you don't like the way they're operating the Port Authority, you take it out on them. Take it out on them, meaning at the ballot box. Yeah, that you have an electoral remedy. But Kagan is also saying, look, we elect politicians to make decisions that include very unpopular decisions. And we have a democratic electoral system in which people try to assemble a coalition of people who like them and get their votes. So this happens at every level of government I've ever covered. The mayor sometimes plows the streets in the wards that vote for him before he gets to mine, you know? And that we have not criminalized all of that. And she's saying we should not, that we should stop well short of criminalizing craven political behavior because craven political behavior is built into the system at some level. Kagan's other suggestion is that this would be a case for state prosecutors to handle. New Jersey does have a state law against improper political behavior, which wouldn't require proof that the aides gained money or property. But some have pointed out that this could be tough in a case like Bridgegate. After all, in New Jersey, the top prosecutor is appointed by the governor's administration. What do you think the message is to politicians around the country (laughs) about how they should behave? Well, you can see it two ways, right? I mean, there are a lot of people who don't like Chris Christie who feel like Chris Christie got away with it. But it is also the case that it did turn out to be pretty devastating to Chris Christie's plans and to the lives of all the people working for him. Christie probably had a pretty good shot at the Republican nomination. By the time he was sort of back up on his feet and was a candidate again, the big fundraising windfall he should have had or might have had had sort of passed him by. And there was another bombastic New York area politician who had sort of taken his lane. Do you think this is the end of the Bridgegate story? Finally? <laughs> There's still questions I have, but um, but yeah, this is the end. And I do wonder if Chris Christie feels like you know, in his own way, he can finally move on. And I do wonder if he feels like a long hangover has finally lifted and 2024 is out there and every other Republican will be thinking about the presidency again. And if anyone could think, why not me? It's Chris Christie. That's all for today, Thursday, May 14th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Special thanks to Brent Kendall for his reporting on this story. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.